You don't need a huge personal audience to be able to run a successful business. But if you want to run a business model like mine, where you are making money on sponsorship, which I do with my newsletter, and also selling, in my case, a um, cohort-based challenge and having a fairly large cohort, then having a large audience helps. But most people need to ladder up to that. And you certainly don't need that if your goals are different than mine. I often say that a lot of people are focused on building their ego and not feeding their family. (laughs) Focus on building the right audience on a large audience. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the only podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to go from unknown to unignorable. My guest today has been on the show before in 2019, and since then, she became the authority on why people buy and use that knowledge to sell more good stuff. She has impressive newsletter, a lot of subscribers, a massive Twitter following, impressive LinkedIn following as well. She's clearly put so much work into this since the last time we talked. But this is all vanity, right? She's achieved all of this without selling her soul. And for that, I'm very honored to have you back, Caitlin Bourgoyne, and to talk about what the fuck happened the last four years. It's been crazy the last four years. I guess last time we talked, there was no global pandemic and I wasn't a mom. So a lot's yeah. happened since I was on the show. Now we've talked in between then, but a lot's happened since I was on the show. I was on the dad and yeah, yeah. Fuck, four years ago feels like an entire lifetime, as you said, with COVID and shit. Anyway, so do we need a large audience like yours to make ends meet? And I'm just gonna, what I mean by large audience, you have like nearly fifty thousand subscribers on your email list, more than hundred thousand on Twitter, nearly fifty thousand on LinkedIn. This is for 99.999% of people much bigger than, than the audience they have. Do we need an audience of your size? Absolutely not. Like it totally depends on your business model, essentially. And I want to share with your audience who doesn't know my background. Like I've been an entrepreneur for 12 years. I've started a couple different companies over that time. It took me up until I would say probably 2019 when I really started taking audience building seriously. And I was running thriving businesses before that. Like I had an agency that did really well. We worked with Target and Holiday. And like, you don't need a huge personal audience to be able to run a successful business. But if you want to run a business model like mine, where you are making money on sponsorship, which I do with my newsletter, and also selling, in my case, a um, cohort-based challenge and having a fairly large cohort, then having a large audience helps. But most people need to ladder up to that. And you certainly don't need that if your goals are different than mine. I often say that a lot of people are focused on building their ego and not feeding their family. (laughs) Focus on building the right audience on a large audience. Let's talk about that. That's such a great way to summarize it. Don't try to feed your ego. Try to like put food on the table, on your table. So what does it mean? So to feed your ego, what is the typical behavior or mindset of folks who are trying to build similar business than yours, as you said, with a sponsorship or having a big audience, what do they tend to think? I think if you're active on Twitter or LinkedIn, which are the two platforms that I spend the most time on, you see a lot of 
same content that is designed for a very broad beginner audience. And it can perform really well because you're going after this broad audience. You're making these big promises. I'm going to help you to build an audience of 100,000 people in 120 days. Like Stuff like that is going to get a lot of visibility and attention. But what I'm seeing from behind the scenes, which is really interesting, is that a lot of these big folks that have come out really and grown their audience very quickly over the last couple of years, behind the scenes, they're actually struggling to monetize their audience because they didn't build an audience around a particular type of expertise that was really valuable. They went for virality. And what's viral isn't always what's valuable. And so what I would say is when you see people that are doing it to feed their ego, they're just chasing likes, they're chasing follows, they're chasing engagement, but they're not necessarily thinking and being thoughtful, which I know that is a huge thing that you help your clients and customers with about positioning their business to be desirable to an audience and being able to come up with an offer that people actually care about. And a lot of these folks have these large audiences. And if you were to ask their audience what they're about, they may not even be able to tell you. What do they do? They may not even be able to tell you. I know one person who has a fairly large audience, hired a ghostwriter, did all the kind of hacky stuff that you can do to build on Twitter and saw almost no business value from it. But again, feeding the ego. Other people look at him and give him pats on the back because his content will go viral. But from for his business, which is a service-based digital service, the clients aren't coming in from it because the connection between the company he runs and the content he's creating isn't clear because he just hired a ghostwriter said, here, go, grow. And so you have to be thoughtful about the content you're creating if your goal in audience building is to build an audience for an existing business or to think about building an audience for a future business that will be really valuable. Uh, it's funny because I know exactly the type of people you're talking about. Just so for the record, we are recording this in 2023 for context. And clearly after COVID or while COVID was happening and a lot of people were getting interested in creating stuff online, we saw a huge increase in people teaching people how to build an audience online, this kind of full circle stuff. From my perspective, we don't have the exact, we are not looking necessarily at the same people, but from what I understand, and tell me if I'm wrong, you're in particular talking about those folks who are sharing those templates and templated Twitter thread and templated everything in order for you to become fucking huge sensation, right? Yeah. There's a quiet rumble happening of people that realize that the emperor has no clothes when it comes to audience growth, like the approaches that some people are taking. So I'm fortunate that I'm working with the team at Demand Curve, and we created a program together called Unignorable. Now that program is the evolution from an audience building program that Julian Shapiro and Sahil Bloom had put together. And if you were to ask Julian today how that program went, they were very successful. They helped a lot of people to grow large audiences. But he also says, he jokes and says, like, I ruined Twitter because basically by teaching people certain techniques and certain approaches to writing content, suddenly you saw this explosion of similar templated content using a lot of the same hooks, using a lot of the same techniques. And it's, while some of that content still performs well today, their original launch that was two to three years ago, it's created this kind of fast food content, which is a good way to put it. Like there's just like a lot of kind of like content out there that's tasty, but devoid of substance. <laughs> 
So I think there's an audience for that though. There's a massive audience for fast food too, right? There's nothing wrong with running a fast food business as long as you're also thinking about what does the long game look like for this? Am I trying to build an audience, a broad audience that I'm going to then monetize through sponsorships? And I'd say that's a bit of a dangerous game right now. We're in a recession and a lot of marketing budgets that might have easily said, yeah, let's chuck 20K into sponsorships and see what happens. A lot of them are pulling back. And so I think that where there was this kind of like frothy excitement around, like you can grow a big audience and then you can make a ton of money on a newsletter or on sponsored content. It's just, if you didn't build the right audience, I think some a lot of people are going to struggle. Examples of shitty hooks. I mean, I'm going to call them shitty hooks because I'm absolutely sick of seeing them. The one that actually makes me crazy is the... Uh, 99% of people, <laughs> ChatGPT is so fucking popular, yet 99% of people don't know how to use it. You want to hear something funny? Our friend Amanda Nativarad, she actually started that hook and she did it as a like tongue in cheek, like poking fun. There was a kind of more similar hook around that it was like, there are, Google Chrome is a super powerful tool, but most people, 80% of people don't know how to use it right. And so she wrote this thread a couple of years back where she said, it was in a response to the fact that there were all of these people writing threads where they were promoting primarily, almost exclusively, other male creators or other male entrepreneurs. And she decided she was going to write a thread and not say, these are the women entrepreneurs you need to follow, but instead just happened to tag all women. And the thread was something along the lines of, if you want to be growing on Twitter and learning on Twitter, 99% of people aren't following the right people, here are 10 people you should know. And I was lucky enough to actually be one of the people that got mentioned in that. And that post went viral. And I think I got 8,000 new Twitter followers from Amanda's one post. It was hilarious. I posted the next day. I was like, I just added 8,000 new followers on Twitter. Some type of hook. How did I do it? And then it was just a two tweet. It was like, Amanda got, like tagged me in this. But Amanda started that. So blame Amanda. And she did it poking fun at that hook. And then that hook became like the default of all the threaders. My most successful LinkedIn post was me poking fun of those type of threads or LinkedIn posts that said, don't hire a designer, use Canva, don't employ a manager, use Notion, like making you believe yeah. that you can replace every single function of a business with a free SaaS. And so I then, each line was getting worse. So don't work with a marketing guy, use Buffer. Don't eat red meat, eat worms from your garden. <laughs> Don't sleep in a bed, wait until you pass out on the floor. Don't hug your family, create a virtual one inside the metaverse. Oh my God, I love that. Don't drink tap water, stand outside with your mouth open until it rains. What I love about that is that there's definitely an appetite for people that are seeing this content and rolling their eyes and going, enough, enough. And I think that the Amanda's post took off because of that. And it sounds like your post like obviously took off because of that. there's people that want, that are just sick of this empty calorie content. It's funny because from my perspective, it's been fascinating to watch, right? I haven't like necessarily spent a lot of time on, on analyzing everything, but clearly being on LinkedIn almost every day to post and being on Twitter sometimes. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see the evolution of it. And I think like anything, the playbook has been, you know, uncovered. People are using it to the fucking max and it's going to stop working or at least it's going to, the value is going to decrease quite a lot. And then there'll be a new thing, right? Yeah. Whatever that new thing is going to be. 
Even now, I'd say that carousels are getting overdone, but carousels were the new threads. Like everyone realized, oh man, I can create a carousel and I can get tons of visibility for that carousel and it will grow my following quickly. And I feel like carousels are now at the point where they're being, they're still they're an awesome form of content. I like that you say what's working in the hacks, because the thing that we did when we created the unignorable program is I really wanted to get into like, we're going to show you what's working because you need to know that what's working, but we're also going to explain why it's working. And we're going to get into the, like the psychology behind viral content and behind the people who you're following, who are growing their audience quickly. What are they doing and why does it work? So that way, when that particular hook is overplayed or that particular format of content, whether it be threads or carousels, there's going to be, I think it's Andrew Chen, former head of growth at Uber. He said the law of shitty click-throughs, right? We're at that stage when it comes to content. Like people are sick of seeing the same type of content over and over again. It's going to lose its appeal. But if the people who are creating content go deeper and they seek to understand why some of these hooks work so well, why do some of these visuals work so well, then they can be ahead of the curve and they can continue creating stuff that they can figure out the next trends as opposed to always feeling like they're jumping on the bandwagon just before it runs out of gas. That's a perfect intro to the actual step-by-step -step I wanted to go through with you today. So you've introduced it perfectly, which is how do we make sure that you lean on the trends of today while keeping those first principles in mind so that, as you said, you can anticipate things and be one of the first to be using trends or to be successful in a new platform or whatever. Let's go through it. As you said, you've taught two cohorts of that program. I know that it's been very well received by the audience and I know the folks at Demon Curve are are legit, as they say in the bees. They're great humans too. They're super smart and they're just awesome people. How do I do it? Let's say I'm joining that cohort, I'm joining that program, working with you 101 and I want to be like you or I want to grow an audience, I want to make money through that audience. What's the first step or the first concept? Working through our approach, basically what we did, so the Demand Curve team, they are awesome at identifying tactically like what are the things that are working now and being able to identify what's working, what's coming next and sharing that. So tactically, they're like the top. And that's why their previous audience building course was so successful. And then what I bring to the table is I talk about the underlying buyer psychology, the underlying cognitive biases or heuristics that are driving the performance of this content. And so a cognitive bias to explain it simply is they, it's like a mental error where we're assessing something like our brains are lazy and we don't want to use a ton of mental energy when we're skimming through social media, when we're when an ad pops up in our feed. And so we make decisions quickly and we use these heuristics, these kind of like rules of thumb to make decisions. And sometimes those decisions aren't the most logical. That's why they're called biases. It's that's not necessarily the most logical. So let me give you an example. Are you familiar with the term the halo effect? I am, but I'm sure that listeners wouldn't necessarily be. So the halo effect would be a bias where we evaluate somebody's one quality of somebody and or brand. And we then think that one quality means that other unrelated qualities might be better. So for instance, if you walk into an Apple store, 
for the first time and you look around and it's bright and you get greeted by a friendly person and it's really easy to navigate to find what you want, then Apple benefits from the halo effect where you might also think, okay, if this is the way that their storefront is and if this is the way that their customer service people are, then I assume that their technology and products are going to be similar, right? That they're going to be good as well. Or another one is tall people. People who are tall, this is shocking to me, but people who are tall actually are likely to make more money, likely to be voted into politics, to hold office, because people assume that if somebody's tall, that must also mean that they are powerful and commanding and smart. So we ascribe these qualities to somebody because of one factor of them, And then we base our decision on other elements of their personality and other pieces that are unrelated. So that's a mistake, right? Because it's obviously not true. People who are tall aren't necessarily more powerful. They're not necessarily smarter. But this one study showed that people who are between five foot five to six foot, every inch above five foot five basically earns you an extra $33,000 in your lifetime of earning power per inch up to six foot. So it's pretty wild. And so that's a bias. It's explainable when you forget recent history, right? When you look at it, when you look at the history of homo sapiens from like a evolutionary perspective, it made sense a few centuries ago, a few millennials ago, right? Where tall people must be healthy. They must have been eating good shit to be able to be that tall, because obviously back then uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. So like back then it made sense and it wasn't an error per se, right? But now in modern society where you don't need to be worried about being eaten alive by a fucking lion or anything, things have changed dramatically, right? And now they could be seen with that new context as an error. Great point. Because like you think about another one that's a really prominent bias, which is loss aversion. And loss aversion from an evolutionary perspective makes a ton of sense. So we're much more afraid to lose than we are to gain. And this is why you'll see people using things like scarcity and urgency to get people to pay attention to their content or to get people to buy their programs. We are often more motivated by the idea of having something to lose than we are by getting equal gains. But when you think about evolution and mankind, there was a time where all resources were really scarce and it was much worse to lose the food that you already had, to lose the water that you already had, than it was to go out and probably try to get equal amounts and gain. So loss aversion makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, but it's still, when you think about it from a rational perspective, and I think that this field of study, it's called behavioral economics. And it emerged because for a long time, economists believed that markets and people were rational, right? They believed like, why wouldn't people save for retirement? They're gonna need that money later without realizing that there's this thing that we do, which is, where we look at our future selves and we say, that's future me's problem. I'm not going to deal with that today because we can't envision future us. So what behavioral economists came along and found is they started studying people. They go, oh, wait, people don't, they don't respond rationally in the real world. They do irrational things that from an economics perspective don't make sense. Yet this is the real behavior of people. And once you start looking at that, it's really interesting because once you learn about this stuff, You can start seeing it yourself that you're like, oh my goodness, I totally do that. And you can start recognizing why you consume the content you consume or why you buy the products you buy. And then also how to influence the audience that you want to attract 
and how to understand what it is that they care about and frame your offers and your content in a way that's more likely to showcase the value and make them want to act. This cool, this really cool field of study that for me has just become an obsession. Yeah, definitely. You're a fucking nerd or geek. I don't know which one is best for you. I think you're both. I say geek is geek is good. Nerd, nerd is, is good. good too. I see nerd is good, but I feel like geek's a term that everyone looks at lovingly, whereas nerd is not as loving. Okay, that's your perception. I like both. You've done a good job at going deeper into the topic. Now let's go practical, actionable. You want to teach me, we don't have that much left, right? You want to teach me how to do this. You want to teach me how to create, build an audience, how to get people to notice me for the right reasons. Where do we start? Okay, so the first thing is, and this is something that I'm sure that you work intently with your customers. The first thing is you really need to identify what topic you want to focus on and who you want to talk to. Because one of those big mistakes that people make is they try to go really broad and they don't define a clear topic in the beginning and they don't define a clear audience. And then they're jumping all over the place, trying to find something that works and nothing is really sticking. Audience building is very much like getting a flywheel to start moving. At first, it's not going to feel like a lot is really happening, but you need to just keep pushing and keep pushing. And so identifying that primary topic that you're going to focus on is really important. But here's the thing, is that you don't just choose that topic yourself. Your audience's feedback and engagement is hugely insightful in making sure you're heading in the right direction. So one of the things that we talk about it with people who come through unignorable is you need to be thoughtful and strategic about it. We give them all of these approaches to learning about their customers. We teach them about customer research. We teach them about jobs to be done, which are bigger topics than I think we can cover in this episode. But fundamentally, it's like you're going to start putting out content and you're going to find out what's working based on your audience's feedback. And you're going to double down on the stuff that's working once you find the content that begins to resonate. And you can feel it. It's like falling in love. Like you can feel when it's happening. Let me give you an example. When I launched the podcast initially six years ago, my hypothesis was that I was making it for myself, obviously, and for tech people. So marketers in tech. And the first episode, that's the person I had in mind. And quickly, I started to get a few emails of feedback because I was intentionally asking in every episode for them to send me emails and stuff. And I learned quickly that actually started to attract people that were not at all in tech. A lot of copywriters, a lot of marketing consultants, a lot of agency owners, like so many quote unquote persona I never thought about. And to your point, then I started to move things around. And now the podcast is really positioned for anyone secret marketing bullshit, but the, the majority who seem to enjoy it the most and seem to be listening are folks in the marketing slash creative space because they're so exposed to the bullshit. Love it. So one of the things we talk about in the program is that I feel like there's two ways to kind of segment your audience and the best, the best creators and many of the best brands, they approach both and there's the job to be done. So in your case, it's like people who are sick of marketing bullshit and identifying that job is critical, but I think then also attribute-based targeting is really valuable too, right? So marketers, clearly marketers are sick of marketing bullshit and knowing that allows you to create something that's going to be really compelling to them. One example I give in the program is there's this great entrepreneur, Amanda Goetz. She recently sold her company, but she started a business 
called House of Wise and they sold CBD gummies. Now, if you know anything about the CBD space, like whether it's oils or gummies or vaping or whatever, most of the brands that were selling CBD products would list a whole host of benefits. So it can help with anxiety. It can help with sleep. It can help with finding cancer. Some of these are like things that are unproven or don't have a lot of data behind them, but they'd have this long list of things that you should buy this one product for. What Amanda did, which is really brilliant, is she launched three products. She launched one for each job. She launched one to help with sleep, one to help with stress, and one to help with sex. And she targeted a very specific customer base that shared common attributes, but they were people who were likely to have those jobs to be done. Like the common people that she was going after were busy career women who were struggling to find balance in their life. They were struggling with sleep. They were struggling with stress and they were so stressed that they weren't feeling very sexy. And so in choosing the jobs and then also identifying a persona that had those common attributes that was most likely to want a solution like this, she was able to create a really powerful brand, grow the company quickly. It got acquired, I think, last year. And it's a great example of how it's often in the blending of the two that leads to the best segmentation. But to your point about when you started the podcast, I think the thing that people struggle with is they think that they need to nail the topic and the audience out of the gate. And you want to be really thoughtful and strategic about that. But you also have to be open to the fact that you're going to learn from your audience over time. When I started creating content for Twitter, I was very focused on talking about audience growth for SaaS companies. And that's who I thought I was going after. And I had all the reasons why that was the right fit. But over time, what I started to see was that the founders, I was going after SaaS founders, the founders who were resonating with my message about audience growth being important for growing your SaaS were the founders who had marketing expertise. And then as I started to dive in more, I was like, oh, wait, marketers actually know what to do with the insights that they gather from research. Marketers know how to apply that and actually get outcomes, whereas a lot of the founders still had a knowledge gap around taking these insights and turning them into actionable campaigns or ways to grow their business. And then so I drilled down more on marketers. So I feel like the thing that people worry about is they're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to pick too small of a niche and it's going to limit me. And then they'll look at people like Justin Welsh, for example, who's built this massive business in what seems like a short amount of time. But what people forget is that when Justin started posting on LinkedIn, Justin was talking exclusively about enterprise sales for health tech. Like how fucking niche is that? And he was growing this audience of salespeople. And then he started making his content a little broader. It wasn't just about enterprise health tech. It was about sales more broadly. And then people started reaching out to him and going, Justin, you've built this big LinkedIn following. How are you doing that? And he goes, oh, the bell goes off in his head. And he goes, I should start talking about how I'm growing on LinkedIn. And then this kind of like journey to where he is today, where I'd say he's one of the top creators that I'm following. I think he's done so many brilliant things, but his journey to there started very narrow and started very strategically and then evolved over time. And that's the way it looks for most people. Let me give you another example of this intersection of job and attribute, as you said. One of my first clients when I went out on my own was a uh, shampoo company, like a new one for Latinas in particular. So they figured out that in the US and, and, and Canada, a lot of Latinas felt like there was nothing really for them and the hair type and the type of activities they were doing. 
And they created three products, three collections they called. One was control, the other one is freedom, and the last one is rescue. And so each, the control is like making sure, yeah, your hair is in control, no freeze, you can control it the way you want. Freedom is more like, you know, I don't really give a shit, I'm getting my curls in the wind. And then the rescue is like uh, heat damage or harsh chemical treatments or whatever, like use that to rescue. So that's pretty much a mirror to what you said about the gummies as well. And that worked really well for them as well. Absolutely love that. You can provide people with the frameworks. And then what we do in on a normal kind of getting into the tactical stuff is we get them to start there. But what we learned between cohort one and cohort two was that initially we had them choose their topic at the very beginning and then focus on that. And what we got pushed back, we got stressed, people were worried, they're like, I don't know if this is right. And so what we changed this time is that we had them pick three topics that they would write about for the next 28 days. They would create content exclusively about those topics. And then at the end, we get them to do what we call the awesomeness audit, where they look at their content, they see what's performing the best, and they decide where they want to double down for the next 100 days. But we're giving them these timeframes where we're saying this isn't forever. And again, coming back to the way that humans work, I think there's just loss aversion around choosing a topic and focusing on it because you're like, what about all the customers I can't have now? So what we tried to do to mitigate that is say, this isn't forever. This is a test. You're going to test this over the next 30 days. 28 days. And then at the end, it's okay. Now in the next hundred posts, which for most people is almost, is just three months. I want you to focus on this. I want you to talk about this. You've seen glimmers of success. You've learned more about like why this stuff works. Now focus on it. And then let's look back because audience building, it's the long game. And anybody who tells you they're going to help you go from like zero to a hundred thousand followers in six months is going to teach you hacks that's going to help you to build a big audience of probably beginner newbie people who aren't that invested in you as a particular creator aren't probably going to buy anything from you or hire you. So be careful when you play this game, like realize it's a long-term investment. And so when we get people to think about this is, okay, so you've got some confidence now that you're on the right track. Now I want you to double down, spend the next hundred posts focusing and talking about this and see how that's performing. So it's very much a test, then invest, and then iterate. So that's what we're trying to encourage people to do. You nailed it, yeah. I think that's the advice I give people as well. And you said it's a test at the start, but let's be honest, it's always a test, right? I know a lot of folks are expecting one day their business will be, will feel like they have control over it, that it's not chaotic anymore, that it can run smoothly, whatever. Spoiler alert, it won't, right? Every single business is messy in the inside. I work for tech companies, big ones, for agencies, for on, in my own. I've never met, when you look under the hoods, any company or creators or like solopreneurs or whatever, who, who are not like super messy in the background. So don't expect that. It's always a test. You have to be willing to change things around and to let go of that loss aversion, as you said. Absolutely. And if you look at the people that you admire, if people are listening to this, they admire you. Maybe some of these people know who I am. Like we, our businesses all started really fucking messy <laughs> and still, and I definitely feel like there's still, like we're moving really fast and we've built a lot of momentum. That's the powerful thing about having an audience is that you get unfair advantages in terms of momentum and attention, but man, did it take me a long time to get here and a lot of friggin' work. 
And that's the other thing is a lot of people will sell you on how quick and easy it can be. I'm here to tell you it's not quick and easy. There's a lot of days that it's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of days that it's you'd rather not be doing it. But the momentum that you build is really powerful because when I, you know, I started audience building before I had a baby and the momentum that I had built in those two years before I decided to have a baby allowed me to then be able to take my step, my foot off the gas a bit. And I knew what worked with my audience already. I had two years of kind of a catalog of content. When I decided to come over to LinkedIn and I have almost 50,000 followers on LinkedIn now, I don't put any effort into LinkedIn. I basically just repurpose stuff that I know performed well on Twitter for LinkedIn. I'm gonna start putting more effort in, but I have the benefit of two years of feedback from an audience where I put a ton of time in and I was able to build that momentum. So this is the thing that makes it so powerful. You have to make it through that stage of just feeling like a grind and a slog and not wanting to do it anymore. And you have to push through that, which most people won't, to get to the stage where suddenly you start to feel like, okay, that was a little bit easier. That was a little bit easier. And then once that momentum starts again, like a flywheel, it keeps moving even if you are not performing at the level you might've been in the beginning, it gets easier. You had those two years before, as you said, but you had years and years of experience as an entrepreneur before as well. And that's so important to mention here because from an outside in, from folks who are not in the industry necessarily, or folks who are getting started, I know that they think it's, it looks easier than it seems, right? It's like, oh, well, all I have to do is post on Twitter three times and reply to comments and do this, do that. It's not as simple as that. And as you said, the mental load, the fatigue, the loneliness, the feeling like, when is it going to get better? The fucking, I have to do this, I have to write this newsletter, even if I'm right, I, I only slept two hours. All of those are very, very, I mean, every one of those people with that type of career are going through that in one way or another. I think that's such an important point, And it's really important to say to your audience, one thing that I learned because I had been doing this game for years and failing at audience building prior to that. One of the big things that we talk about in the program too is like intrinsic motivation is way more powerful than any other form of productivity hack you can try. Like when it comes time to choose your platform and choose the type of audience you want to build, the type of topic you want to talk about, for me, I love geeking out on buyer psychology. And so I'm intrinsically motivated to read about it. I'm intrinsically motivated to create content around it. And I also learned that for me, I tried building an audience on Facebook. I tried building an audience on Instagram. I've been in this game for a long time. I created videos and posted them on YouTube and none of that ever really was the right fit for me. And then I started posting on Twitter back in 2019 and I was like, oh, I like it here. I like these people. I like this format. I'm really good at this short form format. Like it forces these constraints on me and I'm actually really good at that. And I found that. And I feel like one of the things that people make a huge mistake when it comes to audience building is they ask themselves, where's my audience? I'm going to go and build there. So if you're a B2C plant company, you're like, I probably need to be creating Instagram content. So even though I don't being on video, even though I don't like creating videos, like I'm going to have to build on an Instagram and that's where my audience is. And I say, fuck that. You need to choose the platform that plays to your innate strengths, because that's the thing that's when you actually become intrinsically motivated, you create content because you enjoy the process of creating it. So you're not always going to enjoy it. There are days that it is a 
fucking slog as we've talked about, but it's much, much easier to stick with it when there is that intrinsic motivation. And I feel like a lot of people, they get caught up in the hype around a new channel or they get caught up in the hype around a new format. And they're like, I have to do that. That's what's working. And what's going to work for you is going to be the stuff that you're actually good at. So focus on like what type of content you're actually good at and then think about, okay, what platform do I think is I'm going to, if I create content like that, because I'm a big believer that buyers are everywhere. Again, if you're selling plants, you're probably not going to go on like LinkedIn, but you still get to choose between YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. All of those are channels that could work for you. Blogging. And so I think that folks just really buy into that whole go where your audience is and they don't think about what they actually like doing and then they don't stick with it. Concrete example for me was like when I started the podcast, it never felt difficult. I love having conversations like this. I love challenging guests. It always felt quite natural to me. And I realized after talking to a few people that wasn't the case for everyone. So it's so easy to think, to take it for granted. And I think that's the advice I try to give as many people as I can is don't take it for granted. Don't take your uniqueness, don't take your strengths, don't take your passion for granted because it's very likely that you are one of the only one in the world that have this intersection of things. That's such a good point, Louis. There's that zone of genius or your you-ness, your uniqueness. Like people often can't see that in themselves because they do take it for granted. That's such a good point. Uh, like Twitter, I don't like being around Twitter that much, but LinkedIn, actually, that was one of the channels I wanted to develop after. And for some reason, I do prefer going on LinkedIn, right? So it was much easier. It's such a good point. It's the intersection, the Venn diagram, the intersection of where you tend to spend your time naturally, where you like to be, probably your strengths in terms of if you're good at writing versus if you're good at interviewing and where people are going to be. But as you said, and I so agree with this, don't be caught up into our B2B. LinkedIn is for B2B tech. Instagram is only for like fashion and fucking food. No, as you said, people look at the apps you use on your phone and don't tell me that you only fit into that very, very tiny category, like just only on Instagram. Totally. And like to talk about a cognitive bias, I think that you've probably talked about the Von Restorff effect, which is this idea of the things that stand out are the things that we notice and the things that we actually remember. So you're like, okay, I can't build my business on this channel because it's not the most popular channel for topics like mine or content like mine. Well, chances are that if you're the only one that's there talking about that, <laughs> you're actually going to stand out and you'll be more memorable to people because there's not as many. So you can use that to your advantage as well. Let me give you an example. Just there is a guy on Pornhub who created non-sex video and oh, non-porn no videos, math videos. So hold on, just gonna. I'm writing an email about this. Math so, videos on Pornhub. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I love it. So making math sexy. So it's from Taiwan, Chang Su Math from Taiwan, and he asked himself where to find my target students because he's a math teacher, and he was like. Yeah, they're all watching porn, obviously. And he said, yeah, I asked myself where to find my target students, say college boys, and the answer popped out, adult video platform. That's genius. And he racked up 2.8 million views, making $250,000 a year. Love it, love it, love it, love it. And the interest of like, one of the things that we geek out on, I think we might've talked about this a bit in our old episode, was about this idea of trigger events. And I love that you mentioned porn because there's this, genius thing that DoorDash realized. I think it was DoorDash, one of the original food delivery companies. And they were like, guess what happens after somebody has just consumed a piece of porn content? 
Suddenly they're satisfied and hungry. And if you target them with a food delivery service, those ads are going to go through the roof. And I'd love the example of thinking like, where are my customers? But also like, where do I get a unique advantage? A lot of brands might be hesitant to run ads on a porn platform. If you think about what's happening in your customers' own lives that might trigger them to search for a solution like yours, and you're really spending time understanding your audience, which we both geek out about a lot, you can buy what Gary Vee calls like undervalued attention. What is the attention that's cheap right now that you can get that other people don't realize is an opportunity yet? Let me just summarize what we talked about so far because we've covered so much. So you mentioned the difference between being driven by ego and being driven by actually making money. You mentioned like fast food content where there's no calories in it, you don't get anything out of it. You mentioned the halo effect, which is the fact that once they see something in one particular area, then they tend to see it everywhere and assume that you're good at, at the rest. Step one, define your topic and audience. So it's like this intersection of the job to be done and attributes tend to be where the strongest stuff is. We talk about grinding and keeping at it for years and years. And then a very contrarian point for most, which is, yeah, choose not the platform, not where you think your people are hanging out, but based on where you like to spend time, where your strengths lie, as well as where those people are. But you might be surprised by the result, like the one we just said about math and porn. And that buyers are everywhere. I like what you just said there. And then triggers. So I would invite everyone who haven't listened to or have listened to it, but a long time ago, to listen to the episode we did together four years ago. You can search for it pretty quickly by just typing triggers in whatever podcast app you have. Because it's, I would say, the most underlooked or like concept that in marketing, I teach the concept of triggers with clients and all of that. And almost no one can tell me what triggers people to buy their stuff. And that usually leads to the right way, which is like going way up in the funnel, understanding exactly as you said, let's say DoorDash, one of the triggers is just after watching porn, food. And once you have that, you can create campaigns that are so much better and original than the average. A hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. There's this saying in marketing, only 5% of possible buyers are in the market for what you're offering. And it's like, yes, and that's why content is so powerful. And that's why the mere exposure effect, which is this idea that the more we see something, the more we come to like it, and then it'll be top of mind when we're ready to buy. Like All of that's really powerful, which is why audience building is important. But guess fucking what? What if you could identify who those 5% are likely to be and invest some real effort in thoughtful mm -hmm. ways to get in front of them that might not be as overtly obvious, that, then that's good too, because it means that your competitors probably aren't there. Like all of the math tutorial people are on YouTube. They're not on Pornhub, which is why there's such a huge opportunity. So I love that you brought that up because I do think it's something that we talk about in the program. It's a piece of it, but it's really not as drilled into as probably we should. I think we should spend more time explaining that concept to people because with your content, if you look at the, a lot of the content that's performing well for folks, you can identify, you can create those triggers and you can create a trigger event in your customer's lives and then you can also play into them. So for instance, coming back to Justin Welsh, I don't know how much he's studying this stuff. He doesn't really talk about it in his content, but it's certainly evident to me that in analyzing his content that he's either doing this really intentionally or he just happens to be really, this seems to be really easy to him. But he, when the recession happened, he yeah. noticed that inflation was happening. Everyone's worried about the recession. They're worried about losing their jobs. 
guess what? A good hedge, if you're worried about losing your job, is to start trying to create content online, trying to build an audience online, and eventually monetize some side hustle, which is a lot of what he talks about. And so knowing that this event had happened where there's a recession and people are worried about inflation, they're worried about losing their jobs, he created this special offer where depending on where you were, so let's say you're in Canada, inflation in Canada is 11% hypothetically. You automatically get this 11% discount on my products now. So he ties it back to this mental this fear, this loss aversion, lose my job, lose my income, and then offered a really compelling offer. I think he might still be running that, but it was hugely successful. And the other thing he does, he puts out this content where you'll see pictures of him sitting at a restaurant for lunch or sitting out by the fire on a Tuesday night, drinking a glass of wine, where he's showcasing the lifestyle that you could have. That's a way of tapping into those triggers too. Because if you're sitting home, scanning your phone, stressed out and tired from the day, dreading starting your job the next day, and you see this piece of content, you may not realize that piece of content isn't just in being like, here's a nice picture of my backyard where I live in the middle of nowhere and it's beautiful. It's very thoughtfully building that that desire in you. It's very thoughtfully showing you what's achievable if you if you ascribe to some of the products that he sells. So I think that understanding people's trigger events, that trigger event being I'm burned out, I'm worried about losing my job, my boss was an asshole yesterday and I don't want to have to go in tomorrow. And then you see that picture of Justin's beautiful backyard in the middle of nowhere. And you already know because you're following his content that he's making a lot of money as a solopreneur. That becomes a catalyst that yeah. then moves you from being like, I was looking at Justin's stuff, but I didn't really need it to like, you know what, I'm going to start building my audience. I'm going to start becoming a solopreneur. So understanding those trigger events allows you to create content that works really effectively, that isn't obviously salesy content either. A couple of examples of triggers that I talk about. For example, when I buy the microphone I'm using now, I actually bought it because I watched a Joe Rogan episode. And I don't necessarily like him, but I thought, fuck, how does he get such a nice deep voice? And I want the same. I bought it pretty much straight away after. What I was working at Hotjar, the core trigger was I'm on Google Analytics and conversions have dropped and we don't fucking know why. That was just a huge, huge one. And then there's this campaign. I don't know if you saw it from Big, the lighter slash pen company. Yes, I, yes. I and they did this, like they featured a Snoop Dogg and yes. this Martha Stewart and it said, under over Marta, it said perfect for candles and she's lighting a candle and Snoop Dogg is like, and more. And I yeah. love this because it touches on the trigger, which is like the context. It's either you think of Vic whenever you want to light a candle or whenever you want to smoke a joint. Yeah, I love the, there was a brilliant campaign that O. Henry did. So in Canada, when they legalized cannabis, O. Henry put out a special chocolate bar just in Canada called the 425 bar. Because guess what happens at 4.20 if you're in Canada and you're a cannabis consumer? You smoke a joint. Guess what happens at 4.25? You get the bunchies. It was frigging brilliant. And they saw a 7% uptick in sales with the launch of that product. When you think about your customer's trigger events, as opposed to just thinking about, this is what I do and this is what I want to sell. It's so, like the content ideas are really become more obvious, but then also the product ideas, the offers, like all that stuff becomes more obvious too. I really love this stuff. I love geeking out on it. I know, I can tell. But me too. This is by far the, again, the most misunderstood, if not ignored, 
concept that just changes the game in so many ways. You've developed this kind of framework, right? The 7F or 9F or 5Fs. I don't know how many Fs we have For now. Seven, because your brain can only hold, they say, your brain can hold seven objects in your memory plus or minus two. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with seven. What about this, this, those 5Fs? Seven Fs. They're the seven Fs of attention. And this is what we teach inside of Unignorable. And I'll say what the seven Fs are. But basically, there's all these different cognitive biases. There's all these different concepts. And I think there's like over 150 of them. And I thought there's no way people are going to be able to remember all of these individual concepts on their own. But if I can tie them back to this smaller list that would be more memorable, then I think they'll, it'll be easier for them to recall the other things that we're teaching in the program. So for instance, I'll tell you what the seven are and then I'll share underneath each one what might be an example. The seven Fs are fun, fears, fables, meaning stories, faces, fascinates, familiar, and future me. Those are the seven Fs. And within each of those lessons, we teach a number of different, what I call brainy principles. And so in the fun lesson, what we get into is pleasure-inducing content. We talk about there's really two types of fun. There's the more kind of like hedonistic fun that our brain goes after, which is sex and food and pleasure and alcohol. There's the hedonistic side. And then there's the other side, which is more about connection with people and feeling like you have a sense of accomplishment. So we get into how your brain processes fun and these two different approaches. And then we leave them with three brainy principles that they can apply to their content. So the three principles are surprise and delight. And this idea that people find delightful content to be far more, when they don't expect it and it surprises them and they're delighted, they're actually much more loyal to brands. So you can create delightful content by creating content that stands the fuck out, like people think is really cute. So I share a lot of, on Twitter, little visual posts. So for instance, I've got one where there, it looks like it's made out of text. So it's a bunch of like brackets and, and lines and stuff, but it looks like this little guy holding a sign which is similar to that. There's a guy who has a huge social media following. He's always holding up signs, but it looks like this little guy holding a sign, a little stick figure. And then inside it says, the gurus don't have the answers. Customers do. And then like a rocket. So that surprises people because you're creating an image out of text, which is not something that people are used to seeing. It makes them stop scrolling. And when it comes to my likability, it improves it, right? And what do we do? We buy from people we know, like, and trust. And so people see that and they get a little giggle and they think it's cute. So we talk about the surprise and delight. We talk about the humor effect, how we're more likely to remember funny and entertaining information. And we talk about social currency and this idea that people are likely to share things that make them look cool or smart to their peers. So that's all wrapped up under the fun umbrella. And so we've got six other broad topics. And then in each one, we start explaining different concepts. So the goal is that people can remember the seven and then it'll help them to remember the key things inside. But if you just really focus on understanding these seven top level topics, I think it can inform your content as well, even if you don't get into the next level. Fun, fear, future me, fables, foreign faces, and... And familiar. Familiar is the big one, because one of the things that I think a lot of people take for granted is there is a reason why Coca-Cola spends half the money that they make every year on marketing and advertising. 
because they understand the power of the mere exposure effect. We buy and remember the brands we see a lot, which is why audience building is so powerful. If you are the first, you know, there's that saying tip of tongue. What is it? Top of tip of like top of mind, tip of tongue. So if somebody is looking for a referral to a service provider that does what you do and they ask somebody who recently just saw a great piece of content that you put out or recently just read your newsletter, guess who's going to be top of mind? You. And so this is why this content is also so important, why audience building can be so valuable, because it really is huge. Word of mouth is still the number one driver of new customers for every business. And when you're creating a lot of great content, other people are sharing it, other people are remembering it, and you're getting more of that word of mouth, which is critical to every business. You nailed it. I'm afraid we don't have much time to go through the other five Fs, but I'm sure you have content online that I can link to in the show notes. Let me try to again summarize what we said. I've already summarized the first stuff, but there is, as you said, more than 150 cognitive biases, and I have notes on a lot of them. And to be honest, so many are quite similar. And I'm glad you've actually started made the work of summarizing it because there's so many that are very similar. Fun, fear, future fables, foreign faces and familiar. And yes, when you don't know about marketing, and I used to not know about marketing much, I remember looking at TV ads back in France and after the weather and before the weather, there was this company selling oven and fridge and shit like that. And every single weather stuff, they just had a, a 10 second thing that said sponsored by whatever. And then that's it. Just the logo, a little jingle. And I remember thinking, they're wasting their money here. There's no coupon. There is no action that people want to take. And I was very naive because indeed, the mini exposure effect, the fact that when you show up and show up and show up consistently, you will nudge slightly more people to actually remember your stuff. And the next time they need a fucking oven or, or their fridge is broken, they think of you first. And yeah, that was me being very naive. We all are. I would say the same thing. I think a lot of marketers in a direct response world are like, okay, if you're doing what's brand marketing, which doesn't have, like, you can't track the conversion very easily necessarily, then is that a waste of money? And I think for a time, marketers got really excited about growth hacking and this idea that everything was attributable. And the reality is that's just not the case. But there's that old saying that in marketing, half of every marketing budget is wasted. The problem is we don't know which half. That's really true. <laughs> you can try your best. There's a lot of stuff that you can track and analyze. But ultimately, it takes time to build that awareness with your target audience and champions. And it takes multiple exposures. A great example is the product Winter by Pep Lejeune. I knew Pep before he started Winter. And I remember when he first came out with it, I was like, eh, I don't think so. I'm like, I don't get it. It's not like it's like target buyers, but it's not actually your customers. So it's just to me, a bunch of people with opinions. He's been working on it now for several years. And I've been seeing the message over and over. I watched him refine his message. Now I'm a believer in it. Now I think it sounds like a phenomenal product, but at first I didn't get it. So if he would have just tried to focus exclusively on like performance marketing and like growth hacking, he wouldn't have had time to build that trust over time with somebody like me that now I can be an advocate for it and promote it. So I think that people just really are short-sighted when it comes to their stuff. They, they don't realize it's a long game. Completely. Don't get me fucking started. Like we don't have that much time and I wish I could just, you know, say fuck until the end because yes, it's such a short-sighted view of the world and people who don't believe in brand marketing, whatever, simply don't believe that humans are irrational and they believe that they are super rational thinking like economists to go back to your very first point. I think that shows a lack of maturity, lack of naivety, frankly, about the way the world works and how people work. So yes, the best advice I can give on this is study cognitive biases properly and then 
trust your fucking instincts with that science back research to lean on them as much as you can, even if it's difficult to measure the results. Because then you'll have an advantage because so many people are not willing to do this. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. It's about figuring out what are your unique advantages? Where can you get a little bit of leverage? And that's a journey. And I'm still on that journey. I don't feel like I've got it figured all nailed. I don't know. There's always change and shifting. So if you're in a stage where it feels like you said, I think a good thing to leave people thinking really a good takeaway is that it does feel messy and lots of people will sell you on look at how smooth and clean and easy my business is. And behind the scenes, if you're in communities with those folks, which I am lucky to be in like private masterminds with some of the top growers on Twitter, and like you talk to people behind the scenes and everybody is just figuring this shit out as we go. And they're trying to do it as smart as they can, which is what Louie and I want you guys to do. Be as smart as you can about it. But like, it's, you're never going to feel like you have it all figured out. What are the top three resources you recommend listeners today? Listening to? Not necessarily, no. I love the Nudge podcast by Phil Agnew. I think that's an incredible resource. I love the Hidden Brain podcast, another awesome resource. And you should sign up for my newsletter, Why We Buy. We really put a lot of effort into making it something that's going to be a value bomb that comes into your inbox. And so I'd say that if you're geeky about understanding psychology, how people think why the brains do the things that they do. Those would be my top three resources. It makes me proud because I use my own archive for why we buy all the time when I'm trying to think about a concept, like a content idea or explain like an example. So I'm always going back to our archive. So I'm proud that we've built something that even I (laughs) refer back to. That's the sign that it's good shit. Do it for yourself first. The podcast is for me and then I make it public. And so that's how it works. Kate, you've been a pleasure as always. Thanks for being so transparent about your business and everything. So you already mentioned your newsletter, which I highly recommend. Where can listeners connect with you other than the newsletter? I'm most active on Twitter. I'd love to talk to you over there. I find it a much better platform for conversations. But if you're not a big Twitter person, then let's connect on LinkedIn. And then otherwise, it'd be the newsletter. Those are the only real places I'm active. All righty. Once again, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.